Welcome. I'm Darlene McLennan, the manager of the Australian Disability Clearinghouse on Education and Training. And I want to welcome you to this limited series of AdSet podcasts, Talking Tertiary, where we chat with current and former leaders and champions of disability in tertiary education. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Graeme Innes, who has championed the rights of people with disabilities for well over 30 years and has recently been appointed Chancellor for Central Queensland University. Welcome, Graeme, to this podcast. It's really wonderful to have you here. Uh, we were really excited and heartened last year to hear about your appointment as the Chancellor of the Central Queensland University. Um, I think it's a big coup for them and a big coup for us working in the tertiary sector and in the disability space. How important is it that people with disability are seen in leadership roles? You cannot be what you cannot see. And this is a, a well-known lesson in uh, for women and for people of different cultural and linguistic backgrounds. And so it's really important. I'm excited to be in the role uh, because it's a wonderful leadership challenge for me and I can bring to it a lot of my um, experience and knowledge uh, across a range of areas. Um, but I'm also excited because I think it sends a message that um, people with disabilities can be successful in, in leadership positions. You know, we see people like um, Dylan Alcott as the Australian of the Year, um, Kurt Fernley now as Chair of the National Disability Insurance uh, Agency, um, you know, myself as the Chancellor of a university, and I'm sure there are, um, and sadly I've just picked three men there, but I'm sure there are many women in equivalent roles who are women uh, with disabilities, and we need to amplify awareness of that. Not so much, well, both amongst people with disabilities, because Dylan Alcott talks very clearly about uh, when he was younger and how he didn't see anyone who looked like him you know, being successful, and that was a real challenge for him. Uh, and that's true across the, the board of people with disabilities. So it's important for people with disabilities, but it's also really important for the general community to see us making a contribution, making the contribution that we know we can make when we're included. You know, I always say people with disabilities want to be included. It's just society that chooses to keep us out. And so it's important to have that message to broader society as well. So one of the main aims of this, this podcast series that we're doing is to talk to senior leaders and education providers around how they can better meet um, the needs of students with disability. And, you know, you were once a, a student um, and um, have probably have continued your education throughout your life. But just wanted you to talk a little bit about your experience of when you were, were a student within the, the tertiary sector. Well, uh, it was a while ago now, but um, uh, and it was well before technology and computers and the internet uh, and so the world was very different. The challenges that I had though are very similar to the challenges which we still face and that is the negative attitude towards people with disabilities, the limiting and negative assumptions that are made about us. You know one of the things that stands out to me was that my first, uh, when I first went to law school, the dean of the law school was a guy who used a wheelchair and I thought, fantastic, you know, I'm going to get a lot of support here. And he was significantly discouraging of me as a blind person attempting a law degree. So, you know, I had to, I had to get past that, which I did. But it's really disappointing that someone who um, himself experienced disability would take that approach. And I use that just as an example uh, of the general view in society, the general negativity towards um, people with disabilities uh, and not uh, 
not saying, okay, yes, they can do this. What do we need to, um, what sort of accommodations do we need to provide assistance? But rather saying, oh, well, you, you won't be able to do this. You won't be able to do that course. You know, you, you can't be um, qualified as a doctor because you haven't been able to complete some of the uh, practical uh, parts of the course. And that's been the situation in Australia for a number of years and, and um, uh, still may be. So that's the first and probably the biggest barrier that um, I had to get past, that negativity, that assumption that I wouldn't be successful. As well as that, there were all the sorts of challenges that people in the tertiary sector are still aware of. Uh, you know, the, uh, the time that it took to get my uh, textbooks um, produced in alternate format, uh, the fact that I had far smaller access to texts than other students. And so I worked out that what I had to do was know the material that I did have exceedingly well, better than most of the other students. And that was a real problem. And often I was in classes where other students had the textbook in front of them and I, I, was, still, uh, I was still waiting. So that's a, a significant challenge still for people with print disabilities, hopefully addressed um, to, a, to a large degree by uh, availability on the internet. But again, um, blocked by uh, people who, even though this material is on the internet, uh, lecturers who do things like not releasing their book lists um, soon enough, not making uh, material available in other formats than print. Um, so, yeah, most of the challenges that I experienced um, are a bit different now, but they're still being experienced by students with disabilities. And that's really sad, isn't it, that it's uh, 40 or 50 years um, on, uh, but, but those things haven't changed and they haven't changed because of the attitudes that I talk about. It is very frustrating, um, you know, mm. to hear about your experience, but also to know that there are many students that actually are still experiencing um, yeah. that. Um, we, I mean, I spoke briefly before we started that we've recently released guidelines to support the university sector to around ICT accessible mm. procurement. So when that, you know, they are, you know, um, getting, you know, learning management systems or so forth, yep. that those systems, you know, are going to be accessible because we've even heard of students not even being able to enroll because the system is inaccessible. Yes. Yep. But this this year we're hoping to actually work on that next suite of, right. of work around, yeah, making sure that texts and, and um, reading lists and so forth are accessible as well because I think, you know, that's another barrier that we sadly can see that still exists for mm. students. So if you're a student that's about to embark on, on studying or you're a current student with disability, any suggestions or advice that you would give those students um, today in a university context while studying? Well, the first thing I would say is that you have to recognise, and there's no point hiding this from people, so I'm usually pretty upfront about it, you have to recognise that you're going to be at a disadvantage um, in the way that you are viewed in comparison to other students. So you're always starting behind the eight ball. And it's really, really sad. I feel really, really sad giving that message to, you know, new students or um, students embarking on university because I know how excited I was when I started university and I, I just couldn't wait to, uh, to learn all the stuff that I wanted to. But you will be starting behind the eight ball because of the negative attitudes that I've talked about. So you are always going to have to work harder than other students. And there's no point, as I say, gilding that lily. That is the sad reality. I think planning is very important, uh, more important for students with disabilities than for other students. So whether it is the um, access to the materials, uh, whether it's the environment you're going to be um, operating in, 
you know, whatever the particular impact of your disability might be, you'll be better off if you plan ahead, if you go and scope out situations, if you try to learn from um, others and anticipate the challenges that you may run into and uh, try and uh, try and deal with them. In that sense, um, the third thing I'd mention is peer support. It's really critical to be linked in with a group of uh, students in similar situations to you the best people to inform you on the challenges and the way to circumvent those challenges are other students with disabilities. You know, there are experts in the area who do some wonderful work, such as your centre, but the best information you're going to get is from other students with disabilities. Um, so really important to, to make those links and, and have those uh, networks. I suppose they're probably the, uh, the key pieces of advice that I would pass on, knowing that it's going to be harder for you and recognising that right up front doesn't make the challenges easier, but um, a challenge that you understand is is a much easier one to approach than, than one that you don't. So we've kind of focused there on the student and, and what they need to prepare themselves for. In relation to tertiary providers, what, is there one or two things that you could, you know, advise tertiary providers, the university sector and the vet sector around what things that they could do to ensure success of students with disability? Mm. Well, um, the first thing, you know, is stop making negative assumptions about people with disabilities. Um, most of those assumptions that you make will be negative or limiting and most of them will be wrong. So um, step back from those, um, suspend disbelief for, a, for, for a, a bit and actually assume that people with disabilities will be able to achieve in the um, areas or the courses that they've chosen. And if that were done across the board in the um, vet and higher education sectors, then the pathway for people with uh, students with disabilities would be a, uh, a great deal easier. But it's also the same issues that I talked about. Um, so in the same way that a student has to plan, individuals um, providing training uh, and education and the organisations uh, for which they work need to plan, um, need to scope out courses and make the material available because getting the material earlier um, is uh, can make such a difference to people with disabilities. Also thinking about the environment in which students will be studying not just the physical environment, but the, the virtual environment. Uh, and is your software um, accessible for everyone rather than just for people without disabilities? And just not buying software that isn't accessible. So making accessibility um, a, a criteria for your procurement because um, organisations, big organisations like universities can help to drive the access market by making um, procurement decisions, which mean that they only choose uh, accessible uh, equipment and, uh, and software. Uh, also, uh, understanding the uh, importance of reasonable accommodation for students with disabilities, reasonable adjustments. The law is very clear that um, there's an expectation that lecturers and universities will um, make an adjustment for people with disabilities um, within the criteria set down um, under disability discrimination law to the point where that adjustment becomes uh, unjustifiable. So you as a provider have to make the adjustment to the point where it becomes unjustifiable. And unjustifiable hardship is more than hardship. 
you're expected to go through some hardship in order to, when you're making those adjustments, in order to create that um, equal uh, pathway for, for students with disabilities. It's only when that hardship becomes unjustifiable that you can argue that you you know you haven't got to um, take that step. And there's a lot of law around that. I won't try and explain it in more detail now. Um, I read an article just to finish, Darlene, um, during January about um, microaggressions and microaccommodations and the important difference between um, a student having to seek an adjustment and an organisation making that adjustment or off, at least offering the adjustment before the student see seeks it. And I had a very um, clear practical example um, I was traveling with my wife, I was supposed to travel back on a train from where we were. Uh, the train, there was a problem with the line and we had to travel by coach. And um, I asked for a, um, a seat which would be more accessible for me, a seat near the front. And the um, courier on the bus said, oh, well, um, you'll have to ask um, other people to move if you want the accessible seats. In other words, putting it back on me to seek the adjustment that I needed. R really, uh, what she should have done was made that um, micro accommodation. So a really important distinction to draw, not putting the burden, if you like, on the student, but accepting that the burden is the responsibility of the provider. Thank you. It's actually a really good segue into the next question I had. And, and so you've, you've lined this up beautifully. Um, universal design for learning is um, something that, you know, Ad said has been supporting. We've done a number of mm. masterclasses and we've also got a, um, a e-learning resource that people can undertake, mm. um, universal design for learning. But the challenge we're seeing is sometimes education providers can see it as the, the silver bullet that's going to fix everything. If we actually, mm. you know, embed universal design for learning across the institution and in our teaching, then, um, you know, everything will be okay and, and and so forth. And, you know, there's some really great thoughts around that. But mm. just one of the things we're reflecting on now is, and the question I have is, do you think there is a risk that specific expertise relating to disability in the tertiary education um, beyond universal design for learning could get lost in this? Mm. Well, yes, there is that risk. That risk certainly exists. And universal um, design for learning is a really important plank in the development of learning platforms but it's not job done. You know, it's not the end of the road. Um, it's it's a, a, a key step in that road uh, to equality, but it's not the end of that road because there will still be people with disabilities who will need um, particular adjustments in order to be put in an equal place to other, other students. And, you know, it's really important to remember that um, when people with disabilities seek reasonable adjustments, they're not we're not seeking extra benefits or special benefits. We're just seeking equal treatment. But the way to um, provide equal treatment is not to say, um, or the way to provide what is called substantive equality is, is not to, to make the treatment equal. Let me give you a very practical example. You have a set of stairs. You, you, you build a set of stairs as a provider. And um, to provide substantive equality, when you do that, you have to also provide another means of someone who has a mobility disability um, accessing the facility, um, you know, that, that has those stairs. So if you don't do that, you're not providing what's called substantive equality. You're providing sort of notional equality, but not substantive equality. So accommodations or reasonable adjustments aren't extra benefits or 
um, extra treatment, they're bringing a student with disability to that place of substantive equality. Great, thank you. I suppose, yeah, with um, universal design for learning, I suppose we'd probably, not that it's the learning part, but even universal design is it'd be quite um, nice if we didn't actually put stairs in, in the first place. So, Oh, I absolutely. Just, yeah. I just yep. used that as an example. Yeah, no, I did yeah. too. But I just see so many um, wonderful, beautiful buildings that, you know, especially around universities that mm. they get designed and the first thing they have is these great big stairs and they say, oh, we've got access. But it just yep. feels to me as a barrier that already, you know, just visually it actually gives you a barrier. Um, the, look, it is. The place. It, it is a barrier. Um, and that's what Cox and the state of Queensland was all about many years ago when um, uh, when uh, Kevin Cox, when the Queensland um, Exhibition and Convention Centre was designed and they had a beautiful set of sweeping stairs up to the front and people with disability were expected to go right around the building to the back and access it with a lift at the back. And Kevin's argument, which was successful, was that that's not equal, equal um, treatment. And so uh, there is now a glass lift at the front of that building um, next to the sweeping um, set of stairs. And uh, I always... Every time I go there, and I go there a bit more often now because I live not that far from Brisbane, I uh, I ride up in that lift and have a smile about what Kevin has achieved. Talking about um, you know court cases and so forth, you you seem to um, we seem to be able to segue right into the next question quite well. <laughs> <laughs> but have you um, had time to consider the impacts of um, Sklavios versus um, which was on the rights of a future students with disability in tertiary education? And what might be able to do about reforming the Disability Discrimination Act and Disability Standards in Education? I haven't. I haven't turned my mind to that case specifically. Um, I have turned my mind to reform of the Disability Discrimination Act. You know, the Disability Discrimination Act was 30 years old last year, um, and uh, or 30 years old early this year, depending on whether you count when it passed Parliament or when it came into force. 30 years for any piece of legislation is time for a significant review. And I and others in the disability um, field are looking towards a um, campaign to um, to have the, the DDA uh, reviewed. And narrow decisions like that one will be in the focus of that review because um, what that does is narrows the um, effectiveness of the legislation when the legislation was, the intent of the legislation was to achieve what I described as substantive equality, not formal equality. So not saying, well, we've got, you know, we've got this this pathway for access, so everything's okay. Um, the, the intent of the DDA is to achieve substantive equality. So where cases narrow that effectiveness, then the law needs to be, um, the law itself needs to be changed to uh, remove the impact of those cases. Um, just to kind of raise for everybody who is listening, we do in the um, show notes actually put links to anything that's talked about. Um, and I think, Graeme, you spoke about an article you read in January. We'll put a link to that and also the link to the to the case that we just spoke about then um, and also the, the two acts that we're talking about if people want to find out more information. With the obligations that we have around the, the um, United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disability, how well do you think the Act currently represents that? And is that some focus that you'll be looking at that convention when you're actually asking for a review? Uh, well, I would have thought so because the um, Australia, what Australia has committed to under the Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities um, is is going further than what the DDA goes. And so um, the expectation would be that we would um, want to enact laws which um, 
make that uh, international law international law um you know that sort of international law um as set out in the convention is what lawyers describe as soft law so it provides guidance to governments and, and there's encouragement to um apply it but there's not there's not easy enforcement so what you would hope governments would do as a result of signing on to the convention which we have done is to put the convention into effect in our own law and so i would hope that that would certainly be a focus of any review of the dda so one of the things that we've been banging on and we're glad to hear that the current government is starting to bang on is that nine out of 10 future jobs require, or actually I don't even think future jobs, probably jobs now require a tertiary mm. qualification. Mm. And some of the challenges that we've found is that politicians and, and leaders are not seeing tertiary education in the same light as employment. So an example of that is the National Disability Insurance Scheme have done a significant amount of work in, in actually ensuring that employment is front and centre of any of the conversations and the plan is not just for the people with disability, but the people that support them, their, their carers or parents um, is employment. But the post-secondary or tertiary seems to be out of that conversation. And an example is there's no data that that adequately collects how many people um, on the NDIA um, or receiving the insurance scheme um, are undertaking a tertiary qualification or have a yep. tertiary qualification. And even that um, conversation around the National Disability Strategy, yes, tertiary was mentioned, but there was no priority given to it. Tertiary can play such a pivotal role in improving people's health determinants and, and, um, and jobs. So what's your thought or how do you think we can help politicians and leaders to, to put tertiary education fairly and squarely you know, at the forefront of the lives of people with disability? Well, the issue of employment uh, was, um, you know, the NDI, the agency um, moved on the issue of employment because of strong campaigns by the disability sector, um, recognising the disparity in employment between people with disabilities and um, and other people. It's like 30% difference and, it, and that figure hasn't moved for the last 30 years. Uh, so, um, but I think it's very disappointing that tertiary education doesn't get a much stronger role in the national disability strategy. Uh, and um, and hopefully that's something that uh, uh, people will uh, you know begin to campaign for and that governments will begin to look at. Because if we want to achieve that sort of goal that um, Minister Clare and, and others in the education sector are saying uh, in terms of needing these qualifications in order to carry out jobs in Australia, then we can't do it if we don't take into account um, the 20% of people who have disabilities. So uh, it does need to be um, a stronger focus in the in the strategy um, and it does need to have uh, resources um, you know, put towards it. Where do those resources come from? Well, some of it comes from government, uh, some of it comes from universities themselves. Um, and and so could the push for greater inclusion of that issue in the national disability strategy. I think it's a real lack in the strategy that needs to be quickly addressed. Excellent. Well, thank you for that, Graham. It's been fabulous to have a conversation with you and, and to get your thoughts on, on tertiary education and, and disability. Um, it's an area that, you know, it's our role, but we're also very passionate about that around mm. ensuring the success of all students. Of Is there any final words that you would like to, to say on, on finishing? Um, well, I think uh, the key thing for people listening to this um, podcast, you know, to bear in mind is the important part that ADSET has played in, um, in helping uh, supporting students 
uh, and universities and the higher education and vet sectors to go on this journey. Um, and uh, that's been done over the years with significantly small resources, which potentially uh, could get smaller. And so I think it's key that organisations like AdSet uh, continue to be supported, uh, whether it's by government or whether it's from some other source in the university uh, sector. Um, but it's, it's, it's important to recognise the role that has been played by these organisations and to take that into account when, um, when funding decisions are made. Graham, just as we're, we're finishing up, you're now started as the Chancellor of Central Queensland University. Will you be looking at disability and, and how that university um, supports students and what are the issues that uh, are, are kind of existing there at the moment? Oh, I think it's inevitable that I will. Um, and I think that's the expectation of the university. They know my background uh, when they appointed me. They knew my background and uh, my my passions and my advocacy. Uh, you can't switch that off after uh, 40 or 50 years. Uh, so, yes, I think it's inevitable that I will. And, in fact, some people in the university have already drawn issues to my attention that um, uh, that um, I'm hopeful we are reflected more positively uh, in future at CQU. And if CQU can become an exemplar uh, for other universities and the ways that they address disability, then I'd be very proud for that to be part of my legacy. Absolutely brilliant. We'll, um, we'll, we'll make sure we keep connected because the part of what we do at ADSET is to share um, good practice uh, from yep. right across the sector. And we'd really love to, to keep the, the story and the conversations going around what is happening at, at CQU. So, Graeme, thank you. You've taken up a lot of your time today. I really appreciate you giving um, your time so freely to us and, and sharing your experience and thoughts. Um, and, yeah, look forward to hearing more and more about what happens this year in this new role. Um, thanks, Darlene. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. ADSET is committed to the self-determination of First Nations people. We acknowledge the Palawa and Pakana peoples of Lotruida, upon whose lands ADSET is hosted. We also acknowledge the traditional custodians of all the lands across Australia and pay our deep respect to Elders past, present and emerging. Thanks for listening to this ADSET podcast from the Australian Disability Clearinghouse on Education and Training. Supporting you, supporting students.